The reading for today is from Revelation 13, 1 through 4, and then 11 through 18. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who, is, who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it, it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Brett. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you are here. And we are working our way through the book of Revelation in 12 weeks. And today is chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to read the first three verses again, uh, just to remind us what Revelation is about and why we have the book. But uh, we're going to be studying chapter 13 today. Before we get there, I wanted to mention one other item um, that uh, Trey left for me because uh, I wanted to bring it up. Um, since about May, we've been telling you occasionally about uh, restructuring that Redemption Church Arizona is going through the 10 congregations and how that's going to manifest and, and turn out. And um, we told you there was, a, uh, there was a day that we voted on proposals in July. Uh, there was a day in September where we made decisions about which proposal we were going to be, uh, each congregation was going to go for, and now we are in uh, sort of the wake of those decisions actually starting to reconstruct everything uh, according to the desires of each individual congregation and the direction that they are headed. Uh, it's a little bit complex, but not uh, so complex that you can't understand it, but it would take a while for me to explain everything that's happening. And so what we did was we wrote a letter, and uh, it's just a little bit over two pages. So you could, you could probably read it 
in seven minutes and maybe take seven hours to understand it. But anyway, I'm kidding about that. But at any rate, to find the letter, uh, all you do is scan the QR code on the Connect um, card uh, in the seat back in front of you, and you'll be able to find the letter there. And then if you have any questions, you can contact an elder about that. We've all been working through this and continue to work through it. There's still going to be a lot of what you might call backroom reorganization that has to happen. And so uh, Tyler James and Steve Wheeler and Stephanie Shoemate and myself are continuing to be busy with that. But, um, but we're, we're making a lot of progress, and it's been good. It's been very, very good. Uh, the letter will also explain to you where we stand on, on uh, the Sacred Space Project, which has been held up because of um, uh, the city and the, and the um, approval process and all of that which we think was serendipitous because we weren't anticipating we were going to have to go through this restructuring. Um, but the plan is to move forward now. Uh, once we have a much better understanding, which we are gaining right now, we, we feel like we're just about there, uh, as to uh, the costs that might be associated with reorganize, reorganizing, which apparently are not going to be that high because Redemption Arizona is going to take care of the bulk of those for us. So that's really good news as well. So you can read the letter and, and digest that. So, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who is writing this book, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So even right there, you can see in those three verses our mantra from the beginning of the study of this book, that the book of Revelation is not about predicting, but it's about preparing. And in fact, Preparing is one of the major themes of the entire New Testament, that we are preparing for Jesus to return again. So 12 weeks in 22 chapters of Revelation last week, Pastor Trey, who was just up here interviewing Emmett, took us through chapter 12, which is the story of this dragon and a pregnant woman. And the dragon, of course, is Satan, and the pregnant woman is sort of a um, a cosmic narrative of the gospel story of Jesus Christ, which is um, beautiful. And the dragon uh, attempts to take on heaven and take on God, and he's thoroughly defeated. Satan is thoroughly uh, defeated in heaven, and he's cast down to earth. So we had the cosmic battle in chapter 12, and today is the earthly battle, because Satan is not done just because he was beaten in heaven. And today, what we see in chapter 13 which you heard Brett read, is the two beasts that emanate from the dragon, from Satan. And remember last week, uh, Trey made a point of, of, of making sure we understood this. Um, chapter 12 ends with the dragon standing on the sand, um, poised and ready to do battle on the earth, poised and ready for what was next, even though he knows he is eternally defeated, he's doubling down on the, on the, on the war that he's going to wage on the earth. But remember, he's standing on sand. And, and throughout the Bible, sand is seen as a shifting foundation that is not where you want to build your life or build your house. And, and remember that, that although he has already lost, he is going to keep fighting. 
which Trey told us, we need to remember that we are not fighting for victory, but we are fighting from victory. We already know we have a victory, but we have to continue fighting until Jesus comes again. And as mentioned a few weeks ago, and then Trey mentioned it last week, this section comprised of chapters 12 through 14. These three chapters precede the final bowl judgments. It's the final of the three uh, judgments that contain seven different judgments in them. And these bowls each carry a plague that's going to come about on the earth. We're going to look at that in two weeks. Next week we look at 14. And then the seven bowls are 15 and 16, and that's going to be on November 5th. And this three-chapter interlude, as we began to see last week, dives much deeper into the relentless persecution of God's people in the final days. The relentless persecution that Satan manifests on God's people during the final days. The bulls are then introduced in, in chapter 15, verse 7, and more fully discussed in chapter 16, which all precedes the final battle at Armageddon, and then the coming of Jesus. And, and as I said, the manifestation of each bull acts like a plague, and the plagues are very similar if you've read Exodus you're going to see a lot of the Exodus imagery there. It's the same. They're very similar to the plagues that, that God sent against Egypt and against Pharaoh that preceded the Exodus of his people into the wilderness. So now in chapters 12 and 13, all of the signs are things that we actually might hope to avoid. And I would think that anybody reading these chapters would want to avoid. The problem is, is that you're not going to be able to avoid them. There's no way for an unbeliever, somebody who has rejected the gospel, somebody who has rejected God, they can't avoid any of these signs. And there's no way, unfortunately, that God's people can avoid this either. The point of these chapters is to tell us that we need to, we need to stand steadfast in our faith even as the, 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 the challenges and the deception comes. And that's what we're going to be primarily looking at today. The only good sign in these two chapters is the woman and the birth of her baby in chapter 12, verses 1 and 5 and 6. The signs that we would like to avoid represent the evil of those opposed to God, the judgment on those who reject God, and then Satan's war against God's people. And we can't avoid it because Satan is relentless with his schemes, and his schemes will always come. And then the beasts in chapter 13, these two beasts that we look at, um, this earthly battle actually more fully explained the beast that was introduced in chapter 11, verse 7, the beast that emerged from the bottomless pit. So I know it sounds like you need an org chart to keep all of this straight, but I can assure you it's not nearly as difficult as those Game of Thrones novels, which I got 100 pages in and gave up. I just couldn't even do it. It was so confusing with so many characters. So here we go. We're going to reread those first four uh, verses. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea and ten, with ten horns and ten heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head, heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its... Heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled 
as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against the beast? So chapter 13 describes two beasts. We'll see the second one in verses 11 through 18. The first beast comes from the sea. The next one comes from the earth. And both are sourced by, inspired by, and given power by the dragon of chapter 12 that we saw last week. Chapter 12 said that the dragon is Satan. So we know that. So these two beasts that come today represent persons and or systems and or economies and or philosophies and or, as Trey astutely pointed out last week, political powers that are thoroughly anti-God. They are crafty in their deception. They specifically make war on God's people. They desire to create as much havoc and misery as possible, even though they have already lost the eternal final battle. And those who are God's people will have to endure these challenges and sufferings and avoid the deceptions if they can when they happen, because the primary weapon is going to be deception. Furthermore, because they are propagated from the dragon, many commentators posit that the first beast, this one that we just read about, is the Antichrist, whether it's a single person or a symbol of a deceptive, corrupt, uh, deceptive and corrupt system, economy, government, or religion. And verse 3 says that this beast has a mortal wound that is healed. A mortal wound that is healed. This mortal wound is likely mocking the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And the fact that the beast lives on after suffering a mortal, deadly wound is what ironically draws people to worship him. This beast is sort of like a bizarro Jesus. And and, and so think of it this way. Uh, This beast is the greatest theological contradistinction you could find to all that Christ represents, though in the process the beast is trying to make him look make himself look like Christ or a Messiah or a Savior or something that you can put your faith in. Whether it is, we need to remember this, whether it's a person or a system or a political entity or just simply false teaching. It is the fact that this beast is mimicking the slain lamb, the slain lamb but is not the true lamb. He has the the attraction of Jesus, but is not Jesus. He's not even Jesus' light, which is another false form of Jesus with which so many churches today are enamored. You see, this is the height of deception. And John would tell the Christian that our greatest enemy is deception. Read the letters in the New Testament. The greatest challenge that we face is the deception of false teachers and false prophets. We have to constantly be pushing back against that. And what is the opposite of deception? What do we need to thwart deception? We need wisdom. Notice that wisdom is mentioned twice in this chapter. We need wisdom. We need godly, biblical wisdom. We cannot mock wisdom. We cannot take wisdom for granted. It is key. And then the second beast, which we'll get to, is a false prophet pointing to the glory of the first beast. So the second beast is something like a bizarro John the Baptist. Think of it this way. The second beast, the false prophet, 
is, a pu is the public relations campaign for everything that is anti-God. Satan, the Antichrist, the world systems that promise hope and happiness, but deliver nothing but misery. The world's systems that are constantly promising happiness, success, and fulfillment, but ultimately only deliver us misery. So question, are these beasts happening now or will they happen in the future? Yes. Now, I can't say for sure if it's one or both, but it's one or both. And it's possible that they may have already started happening in our systems that we have in this world. What I can say for certain, however, is that there has always, always been deception and oppression aimed at God's people. And, and remember, many, many prominent people over the years have been accused of being antichrists and false prophets. I'm old enough to remember the Democratic primary from 2008. Anybody else remember the Democratic primary from 2008? So uh, I remember that Hillary Clinton was the shoe-in. It was, it was just, it, the whole Democratic primary process was just a coronation for Hillary Clinton to be the Democratic nominee for president. You remember that? Okay. This was also 2008. 2008 was back in those days when every last person who had access to email felt it was their Christian duty to forward every email that they found amusing to their pastor. It was the worst of times. <laughs> Cat videos and just whatever, just, oh, my pastor has got to see this, okay? No, I don't. Literally, I would get up in the morning and I would have more than 100 uh, forwards in my inbox every morning. I got to a point where if I saw FWD backslash backslash colon, I just deleted it. So too bad if you were my attorney forwarding me something. I never saw it, okay? It, just, it, was, it was absolutely horrible, okay? The vast majority of these forwards during this primary season, can you guess what they were? Hillary Clinton is the Antichrist. Hillary Clinton is the Antichrist. Over and over and over. Look at this, look at this. Revelation, Isaiah, Hillary, it's Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton. As if nobody has ever been accused of being the Antichrist before Hillary Clinton. It was Hillary Clinton. And then I remember, there was that moment, and it happened like that, that moment when this guy Barack Obama came out of nowhere and suddenly he had the magic number of delegates to become the Democratic nominee for president in 2008. Like that, the Hillary Clinton email stopped and here come all the Barack Obama emails. Barack Obama's the, the Antichrist. Barack Obama, look at Isaiah, look at Revelation, look at First Timothy. Uh, Barack Obama, Barack Obama. And it just kills me because of course, everybody knows it's Taylor Swift. How do we not? <laughs> Now, now, you Swifties, I'm kidding. The point is, that that's all true except for what I said about Taylor, okay? That story is true. What I'm trying to tell you is how silly and ridiculous projecting and predicting is. Just... Don't waste your time, and please don't waste anybody else's time. By the way, I'm so glad that we have grown up as a civilization that we no longer forward emails to each other. 
That is a beautiful thing. We are growing up in Christ by doing that, okay? We need to remember, we need to remember that deception is just all over these verses. In John's mind, the writer of Revelation, he believes that the primary enemy of the Christian is deception, so be on your guard. How often in the New Testament does it say, beware, be on your guard? You need to know God's word, not your word. You need to know God's understanding of what's going to happen, not your figuring of what's going to happen. And if you recall, this beast, this first beast, the Antichrist, rises out of the sea, and the sea symbolizes chaos, confusion, and doubt. Deception. All right, the middle verses. And it's actually in these middle verses that I asked Brett not to read this morning where we find the core verse for this entire chapter. So 5 through 10. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. And if anyone is to be slain with the sword, uh, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the verse. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Now, before I speak on this paragraph in totality, look at verse 7 where it is written that the beast will make war on the saints, on God's people, and conquer them. This is not talking about waging a military campaign, but rather it is talking about the overwhelming deception of and hostility against God's people through any means possible. If you remember, the first time deception happened was in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The woman was deceived and she ate. Satan didn't come at her with a full frontal attack. Instead, he came along up beside her and just engaged her in a conversation and started to get her to doubt. And then he deceived her. She was deceived. That's where it happens. And, and Satan will do it through any means possible. Political means, economic means, worldly system means, educational and philosophical means, heresy and false religious means, whatever it takes. And now there is a sense in which this six-verse paragraph in Revelation is not all that hard to figure out. And in many ways, it serves as an excellent synopsis of the reality of the world and the challenges that people who follow Jesus must face. You know, I found when we started announcing and telling people that we were going to do the book of Revelation for 12 weeks, uh, there were, there were um, very opposite reactions to that. There were so many people who were, who were just so encouraged and, and excited and glad. Maybe now I might be able to get a foothold on what this, this intimidating book is really all about, this strange book with these strange uh, cosmic scenes. Maybe now I'll be able to get some foothold of understanding on it. But we also had a number of other people who said, I don't know why you're doing that book. It's impossible to understand. It's intimidating. It's scary. It's harsh. I don't know why any church would want to do that book. That's not a good book uh, to be doing. 
But people are intimidated by the book of Revelation. And so what happens is most people, whether, no matter what side of that argument they're on, they just abandon any hope of reading it with any understanding. And that's not true, and especially with this paragraph. I, I've been telling you that on Tuesday mornings, we, we just read scripture for a half an hour out loud. I read scripture from 6.30 to 7. And during the, the Revelation series, I said, we're just going to read Revelation over and over on Tuesday morning. We'll get through it four or five times during the 12 weeks. And, and we have a very, very small but dedicated and loyal group of people who show up at 6.30 on Tuesday morning because they have nothing better to do or they're on their way to work. I don't know what it is. But at any rate, they show up at 6.30 on Tuesday morning and we've been reading through Revelation together. And this last Tuesday morning, one of the persons said, you know, I have to tell you, I, I can't believe that I'm saying this, but I am actually encouraged by this book. I appreciate it more. I'm, I'm actually sort of enjoying it because I get it now. I get it. We're just reading it. We're just reading it. We're just reading it. Pick up the Bible and read it. If you don't understand it at first, it's kind of like Shakespeare. If you, you're not going to understand Shakespeare at first either. But at some point, you're going to start to figure it out and you're going to start to understand it. God is not going to communicate to us a way that's so obscure that, that he's not going to allow the person of God to understand what he's telling us. It's just that sometimes it might take a little bit of work. So let's look at seven easily discernible facts that any good reader can grasp from these six verses. Number one, people are like sheep and they are easily deceived. Number two, sheepy people, or sheeple, are much more inclined to follow the world and its philosophies than God. Now listen to what one scholar, Alan Johnson, writes. When God is removed from culture, who are we to follow? Karl Marx said it this way, man is God, we have no choice. For if there is no God to believe in, we must believe in man. And if we believe in man, his inherent goodness becomes a necessity. Can you see how... Now, Marx was not an idiot. But he was so off base. And you know, one of the reasons he was off base, I talked about this last January. One of the reasons he was off base is because his philosophy was Rousseauian in its foundation. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who lived 100 years before him, Marx was familiar with Rousseau's philosophy. Rousseau's philosophy was, there is no God, we don't need God, humans are inherently good. And we're glorious and we're wonderful. So Marx believed that. And so Marx is an atheist, even though he was raised in a Christian home. Marx is now an atheist. And he says there is no God, so we have to believe in human beings. And if we're going to believe in human beings, we have to make them good. Otherwise, why believe in them? Do you see how this is? That's Marx. Number three, Christians are and will be persecuted. Number four, it almost always appears as though the world wins. Number five, the world's victories are short-lived. Number six, God's people are called to steadfast, persevering faith no matter what. Number seven, God's people are called to actively be on guard against deception and to discern false teaching and untruths. And you see that number seven there is what the end of verse 10 calls us to. And the end of verse 10 is the core of this entire message. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Make no mistake, Satan comes for Christians. Uh, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say it this way. 
Anyone can die for their faith. The real question is, will we have the courage to live for it? Now the second beast, verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is, <clears throat> that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make it an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and its number is 666. So here is the beast from the earth, the false prophet, the bizarro John the Baptist. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, verse 15. Watch out for the false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious, ravenous wolves. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for heresy, for blasphemy. Watch out for deception. And again, notice how this beast is pointing to the first beast, promoting the first beast, working on the first beast's behalf, the human relations, uh, um, yeah, the human relations campaign um, for the first beast. Also notice that the signs and miracles these beasts perform are not genuine godly spiritual gifts, but rather dark spiritual phenomena designed to deceive not just the people of the earth who have no interest in Jesus, but also designed to deceive those who believe in Jesus. Furthermore, this particular beast represents an idolatrous system of worship instigated by the dragon in order to deceive humans into breaking the first commandment, which would be, have no other gods before me. John Steinbeck, the great author, once wrote, Virtue lasts forever, but evil must always produce a new face. So now let's talk about the number and then the mark. How do we interpret 666? Really, there are only two possibilities, and I would, I would propose that only one truly fits the context of John's literary process. So there's this thing called gematria, which is a sort of numerology or number games, and then there's symbolism, so gematria or symbolism. So let's talk about gematria, gematria first, the numbers game. 666 numerically in ancient Hebrew actually spells out the word beast or Nero. Nero, of course, was the Caesar of Rome from 54 to 68 who fiddled while Rome was burning and who also, in order to persecute and oppress Christians, would gather Christians and he would slay them and spear them, and then he would dip them in oil and then light them on fire on his patio in order to light his patio during his parties. Historical fact, you can look it up. Okay, that was Nero. So the question then becomes, well, who is today's Nero? Those who believe this explanation do not believe that Nero was the Antichrist, but that Nero symbolizes how perhaps nations become anti-God beasts through their power. And that's not bad. 
But I don't think it's as compelling as the symbolism argument. And one of the reasons this, this theory of gematria has been debunked is that John does the numerology stuff nowhere else in his writings. He uses numbers symbolically everywhere else, always symbolically. So consider the number seven, we've already pointed this out. It symbolizes perfection, holiness, purity, and completeness. Now consider six. It symbolizes the exact opposite or the inversion or the fragmentation of seven. Six symbolizes incomplete, unholy, polluted, corruption, blasphemy, and wickedness. But there's three of them. So 666. So 666 is not just evil, but overwhelming exponential evil. It, it symbolizes a wickedness so powerful and so far beyond any evil we have ever seen or contended with or witnessed. We have never even begun to consider the depth of this evil. Not Hitler, not Stalin, not Pol Pot. And yet throngs of people, millions of people, will gladly follow this evil and sacrifice everything for this evil. Uh, some of the essays that I read about this too, I was reminded, this is fascinating. You know, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is confronted with the reality of, of the living God in, in front of him, and, and other places, all throughout Scripture, this happens too. When Isaiah is confronted and there's these um, uh, angels, these cherubim singing, what are they singing? Three words, holy, holy, holy. 666, some people believe, represents this chant. Human, human, human. We must believe in us. We are the gods. We are good. We control our own destiny. We make it happen. There is no need for God. And then verses 16 and 17, the mark. The first thing to understand is that the mark will not necessarily literally go on the forehead or the hand. It's more figurative. Now, why? Why is that? Because the mark can be metaphorical. It can be digital. It can be loyal to a loyalty. It can be a social media profile. Now I'm meddling. I understand, but I'm going to meddle. All right? It can be a socioeconomic profile. Whatever the beast might use to make people conform. Now, I'm going to talk about a show that I do not recommend. I've seen three episodes, and that was enough for me. But serendipitously, one of those episodes was from season three, episode one. It's called Nosedive. And the name of the show is Black Mirror. Now, don't get all excited because I said Black Mirror. We don't want to know that you watch that show. It's freaky, okay? But season three, episode one, called Nosedive, is a, it, this show is very prophetic. It's about how in the future, um, on our phones, we will have our profile, and every time we walk by anybody else who has one of these phones, and you're required to have one of these phones, anytime you walk by somebody or engage with them, doesn't matter if you're in their proximity, even if you don't talk to them, you just see them or not see them, you have to rate them from one to five stars. And their star rating becomes their socioeconomic rating that the government uses to tell you where you can live, how much you have to pay for rent, how much you, what kind of mortgage rates you can get. If you have a 4.8 star rating, you can live in the best place with a mortgage rate of 0% and nothing down and very low payments. It tells you what lines you can get in at the grocery store, what foods you can buy at the grocery store. It's, it's a, you, it, if you have a 4.0 
4.8 rating, you don't have to pay for TSA pre-check. You just get TSA pre-check. It's, it's kind of like that. Okay? It's prophetic. Everybody's a Yelp account. That's essentially what it is. It's prophetic. Okay? So a couple months after I saw this show, again, I use the word serendipitous. I don't believe in any of that. God, God made everything come together for me. I was told, hey, you need to read this book by Kai Strittmatter. It's called We Have Been Harmonized. So Kai Strittmatter was a London Times journalist who lived and reported from China for 30 years. And he wrote a book called We Have Been Harmonized about his experience in China. And he said everything that happens that, that, that uh, happened in, in Black Mirror Season 3, uh, um, Episode 1, is already happening in China. Everybody is being harmonized. And he says harmonized is actually a euphemism. It really means mandatory conformity. Consider Romans 12. Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ. Do not be harmonized. So how, Frank, how are we harmonized? Through surveillance. Well, surveillance through what? Our phones, our computers, our social media apps that we use, all the apps that we use. It doesn't even have to be a social media apps and public video cameras. Now, I, this, is, this is very common for rooms to get very quiet and dour when I talk about this and for people to just dismiss this out of hand as if it's not happening. It is happening, and I don't know why you want to pretend it's not happening. It's already happening. I'm not saying that this is the beast. I'm just saying that it could be and the technology is there for it to happen and the sin is there for it to happen and the systems are there for it to happen. Do I need to say more? Go ahead, roll your eyes. I'm used to people rolling their eyes on this. One last important item about the mark of the beast. Guess what? In a sense, everyone has had 666 imprinted on them since Genesis 3 when they were born. You ever think about that? You're already born into sin. You're already born into condemnation. And there's only one way to erase the 666, and that is through Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for your sins and then defeated Satan's sin and death through his resurrection, and you come to him. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to get that mark off of you whatever that mark might be. As we wrap today, two things that I think we should remember. Number one, these interlude chapters remind us that even as Satan stands in front of and, and in opposition to the church and to the purposes of God, the church will never be defeated by Satan. The church will never be defeated by Satan. Having lost in heaven and out of anger and frustration, Trey talked about this last week, Satan redoubles his effort on earth against God's will, against God's purposes, and against the church of God's people. And it's harmful, but he cannot ultimately win. But we are called to fight. And we fight not for victory, but from victory. Here's the second. Even as Satan cannot prevail against the church and God's purposes, Satan can prevail temporally and temporarily against individuals of God's people. Let me give you an example. I've often thought, especially in the ethos of the last five years, seven years, and certainly in the coming years, 
I've often thought that I would probably someday end up being charged with a crime and jailed for something related to proclaiming the gospel or teaching the Bible. I just figure that eventually is probably going to happen. And, and my hope is that um, if that does happen, our prison ministry will take on a new fervor. And, and <laughs> so. Anyway, it happens in other countries. It's already happening in Canada. Something that 20 years ago we would have said, there's no way that would happen in Canada. It's happening in Canada. That's just north of us. Okay? So let's say I go to jail or I'm persecuted in some way because of the gospel, or maybe it's you. Here you go. It does not mean that the church has been defeated, and it doesn't mean that I will not be eternally in the new Jerusalem with Jesus. That's not what it means. It just means that he can win temporarily and temporarily. And to be clear and fair, can I just say this for the record? I do not like being persecuted or oppressed for my faith at all. But I would also never take my personal temporal defeat as any sort of ultimate victory for Satan. When it matters most, Satan cannot win, and he will not win. And that's the glorious gospel of hope that we should be all putting our faith in. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and especially for this chapter here, right in the middle of the book of Revelation, that calls us to a steadfast faith in the face of whatever is going to come our way. God, I pray, I pray that we would just, uh, we would welcome and, and, and just beg the Holy Spirit to come and live in and with and through us. And that we would be guided by your word and by your resurrected son as we face these challenges. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.